Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 204 of the Fun with Cars Formula One podcast for coverage of the Monaco Grand Prix. Monaco Grand Prix. There it is. Just one Grand Prix. That's right, because we had a podcast just two weeks ago. Uh, uh, Harrison is being babysat as we speak, and all is well. I'm Robin Warner, and I am not alone today. I have a co-host with me, uh, a pinch co-host, and we'll see if he has any interest in doing this. Um, before he introduces himself, I'm going to I'm going to uh, try to do an impression of him, and then you can tell me how well I do. Okay. <clears throat> Excuse me. Hold on. Oh, hello. My name is Chris. How's it going, governor? Fancy a spot of tea? I've got a lorry full of crumpets on the verge. Fancy that. Bring a saloon. Hello. Okay. How, okay, how'd I do? How'd I do? Well, Robin, I felt like I was back at home just there for a moment. <laughs> that was tremendous. Oh, I just, you know, I've been practicing for years. <laughs> yes, so uh, some real Formula One expertise in the house today then. <laughs> sure, right. Genuine F1 anorak right here. <laughs> Everyone, this is Chris Roush. Am I pronouncing that correctly? No, you're not, mate. Uh, it's Chris Roche. Chris Roche. Uh, uh, Chris and I are friends. We were former co-workers and... He's English, as you might have gathered, and uh, fancies the Formula One cars. So he said, yeah, sure, I'll give this a try. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it was a fascinating race yesterday, so I can't wait to, to dive into how dominant the Ferrari performance was. Yes, yes. Well, it's, uh, it's fascinating uh, to see the 27 season, 2017 season unfold and uh, to see the Mercedes dominance slipping away. But... Uh, just to give uh, fans uh, and listeners to the show a little bit better understanding, Chris, um, like myself, is an engineer. Unlike myself, he is still an engineer. He <laughs> he, uh, he works he works in uh, what would you call this body structure? Would you just say body simply? Would yeah, it, body engineering. That's body right. Body engineering. Yeah, okay. been doing it for over twenty years. Um, all over the world: Germany, England, uh, China, U.S. So. And how long have you been in the U.S.? Uh, since 99. So I'm slowly picking up a Michigan Midwestern accent, as you can all tell. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're, you, have some, you have some room yet. Don't worry. Um, went back to England for a couple of years. But uh, yeah, my wife uh, is a Michigan alum. And so we've uh, settled in Ann Arbor, where we try and still, you know, follow racing that goes left and right instead of uh, left. That's University of Michigan when you say Michigan alum, I assume. That's correct. Yeah, that's the university here in Ann Arbor. That is uh, my uh, grad school alum as well. So anyway, uh, yeah, so that's that's great. So you you were in Germany and China as well. Yeah. So the first job I had was with uh, Rover Group, which is now uh, you know gone gone uh, the way of many old British car firms, and uh, is now dispersed. So you've got Mini uh, Mini Land Rover, MG, and Rover cars. That was my first job, and. Um, it was owned by BMW at the time. This is back in the late 90s. So I got to work in Munich for six months, working on the first generation X5. Um, so that was that was uh, a lot of fun. And then um, then I moved to the US after the Rover Group. Was, it was clear that company was was uh, 
was not for much longer and uh, came to the US and I started working for Chrysler. So I worked uh, I worked for another sort of hybrid German, German-American German firm instead of a hybrid okay, so German-British firm. Yeah. It was during the Mercedes ownership. Thing. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So a lot of Jeep engineering, worked on Liberty, Grand Cherokee, a couple of generations of the Grand Cherokee. And, um, and then more recently, it's been Hyundai and Shanghai Automotive. And Hyundai is, of course, where Chris and I met, and uh, here I was, someone with an actual Midwestern accent, (laughs) uh, speaking about Formula One as if I've seen it more than once. So uh, that was a tie that bonded us, and if I remember correctly, uh, you fancied a bit of driving yourself, Chris. Yeah, I've raced a few cars in my time. I started out in MGs. When I was at Rover Group, we had a little uh, after-work club and we raced MGs. I got to race all over England. Even made it to Spa Francorchamps uh, one time. I love was, it there. Absolutely yeah. fantastic spot. It was uh, so racing an MG RV8. Um, so it was basically an MGB with a V8 uh, shoehorned under the hood, or bonnet, as I like to say. And uh, you like to say incorrectly. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> I, I should be careful. A, a quite. A, it's a minority, but a quite large minority of our podcast listeners are English. So. Oh, okay. Yeah, so bonnet actually is uh, they'll understand a, a fairly that. common term amongst no. us, yes. So, yeah, I've done a little bit of shifter karting. I've done some SCCA racing here. I mean, all at pretty low basic club level, but, uh, you know, it's good fun. Enjoy it a lot. And I haven't done it recently. The two children are stymieing my efforts to get out on the track, but we'll get back one day. Yeah, very good. Well, so there he is, Chris Roche, not Roush, silly people. Um, and, uh, yeah, anyway, so let's get into it. So Monaco, it's the, uh, jewel in the crown of the formula one championship, Mm. yada, yada, yada. Yeah. And, uh, our, our good friend and also sometimes co-host of the show, Jamie Price was there shooting photographs. So I'm sure I'm going to hear from him soon as well. It's one of his favorite spots, uh, for the beauty of the landscape and for, the uh, contrast between the azure blue of the Mediterranean and kind of like the small fishing village roots, but then with just the opulence of the whole thing. Right. So just, and, the, and then the celebrities and the wealth and everything. I mean, the whole thing is just kind of a netherworld kind of almost dream as opposed to reality type of spot. So that's kind of the setup of the Monaco Grand Prix. Yeah, it's a beautiful location. Yeah. I'm sure that the watching the cars dance around the streets must be amazing, you know, up close and personal with those those machines. I mean they you know they hit the armco regularly, right? And scatter parts into the the crowds. More regularly this year than the last few, (laughs) thanks to the cars being eight inches wider. Yep. So it's 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 definitely that. And it's have have you ever been? Uh, no, I haven't been. Uh, I'd like to one day, but uh, no, I haven't been. I mean, it's not much of a race, though, is it? Let's be honest. It's more of a 78-lap procession, but it is spectacular. I think, the you know, if you like Formula One cars, watching them uh, try and navigate, you know, there's amazing. I mean, there's no straights on the track, is there? It's all all it's always curving up and downhill. Yeah. Uh, it's, there's it's places an amazing where you scene. could say it's flat. Yeah, flat to the floor, but yeah, I don't think you can call any of it straight, really. No, a lot of it. So yeah, it's it's an amazing race. Hold on, there's about a tenth of a mile, I'll say uh, two tenths of a kilometer, uh, uh, uphill after turn one. Mm -hmm. That's pretty straight before you go into the sweeping left. Yeah, and the pool area has a couple of straights, right? But uh, other than that, yeah. 
There you go. So there, it does have straights, uh, proof be told. But (laughs) (laughs) so uh, actually, the qualifying of Monaco, I found very fascinating. Uh, First of all, I'm a huge Raikkonen fan. Um, Mine. Raikkonen is the one and only driver on the grid that's older than me, Mm. and uh, not by much either. So I quite, I quite like that. uh, I can still call myself Formula One age thanks to him. And he performed brilliantly. Well, first first pole position since two thousand and eight, right? So yeah, that's that's an astonishing statistic, really. That he hasn't been on pole. I mean, he took a couple of years out, didn't he? But even so, to uh, to be you know almost ten years without a pole and to do it in one of the trickiest tracks of the season against you know an amazing teammate is yeah quite, quite a so. Yeah, and in fact, uh, speaking of Jamie Price, uh, he and his journalist photographer group. Of friends, they had a fun Facebook. They said, "Post a Facebook photo of you when Kimi got his last pole." <laughs> so, <laughs> okay. So there was this picture of Jamie when he was 21 years old, yeah. just uh, hunkered in front of a Ferrari that you know he saw and he had to take a picture with that kind of thing. And uh, yeah, so it was quite interesting to see. And it's fascinating because I hadn't thought of it actively but Kimi Kimi had certainly won since 2008 mm-hmm. you know he won uh he won in in the Ferrari in 09 and then when he came back with uh Lotus slash Renault he won was it two or three races with them Grand Prix with them um so he'd been winning uh but yeah I guess never from pole right I mean the Ferraris were just amazing this weekend weren't they i mean just absolutely dominant from second practice and uh you know the red bulls were a lot closer this race and mercedes were nowhere i mean really quite an embarrassing performance they've uh only four times since 2014 have they not been on the podium and they just really hadn't got a clue how to deal with low abrasion track surfaces particularly with hamilton i mean he was he was uh he had a, a nightmare of a practice and qualifying session let's be honest well, Hamilton's no Rosberg, as you and I both know. Thank goodness for that, eh? <laughs> Rosberg reiterated over the weekend that he doesn't miss Formula One. I don't know. Is that news anymore? We don't miss Rosberg either. So, oh, at least I don't. Chris Chris, <laughs> and I got to know each other because of my presumed love for Rosberg. <laughs> that's, that's how our bond was built at uh, Hyundai. He actually said he had the perfect Formula One career. Did you hear that quote? I thought that was interesting. It's not entirely wrong well, to it, <laughs> to leave the sport as reigning champion but i mean a perfect career so if your idea of perfection is being drubbed by hamilton throughout your entire career until finally looking into a world championship because hamilton has a nightmare reliability season then yeah that's perfection i guess so i'm convinced that this is all a defense mechanism <laughs> to hide your deep and profound love for rosberg that you cannot it one day will come up Apparently, if he was still driving, Mercedes would not be having the trouble setting up the car for these types of tracks, and they would have been super competitive all weekend. I, uh, but anyway, I'm not sure. But, I, buy into I that. mean, all honestly, that's true of any good champion to be like, well, if I was still there, of course, it'd be yeah. better. I mean, look no further than Jacques Villeneuve for anything that's, uh, you know. Is he still? Is he, has he retired yet, or is he is he still available for F1 drive? He might be. He might be a country singer again. I just don't know. Yeah. Anyway, uh, well, it's fascinating, though, because Ferrari definitely had legs on Mercedes. But uh, just as you mentioned, you know, Botas was very much carrying the flag. And I felt 
this was in some ways a remnant of Russia where Botas was clearly the lead car and when Botas showed an edge Hamilton just seemed to be out of sorts entirely. Yeah, I mean Botas for whatever reason his driving style seems to cope with Mercedes's lack of performance on this type of low abrasion track and uh, but even he was some way off the Ferrari pace. So Mercedes have a genuine problem. I, and what disappoints me is the fact that they've made so little progress since Sochi to actually correct that issue. I mean, they were, I was hopeful after, after Barcelona and the fact that they were fastest, Mercedes were fastest in the last sector, in the slower corners, that they had gone some way to addressing the problem, but clearly not. I mean, in Monaco, Hamilton in particular was lost. Um, I mean, Botas didn't get on the podium. He uh, he was fighting a rear guard action against uh, Verstappen for most of the second half of the race. Um, you know, Mercedes were, were third quickest car. And that's quite a fall from grace, really, isn't it? Yeah, that's, that's true. Yeah, Red Bull's pace was uh, impressive uh, considering how they've done so far in 2017. And, uh, you know, Ricardo is quite, I mean, I I think he's quite good, generally speaking, of course, but he's exceptionally good around Monaco, aggressive in all the right places. Quite, you know, Verstappen, on the other hand, you mentioned that this was his first race finish, so it's just not at the same level as Ricardo is. But uh, I I do want to have I do want to give another shout out to um, the other almost as old as me, uh, Raikkonen, slightly older. And Jensen Button is just less than a month younger than me. And uh, he was back in the car. Yeah, he was. And he was quick. I mean, he qualified uh, ninth. Yeah, he qualified ninth, but he started from the pit from the pit lane. Well, it's because he's driving a Honda-powered car. I mean, yeah. just, uh, I mean, Alonso made the, the right decision to, to disappear to Indy for the weekend, didn't he? I mean... Well, yeah, we're going to get to that. Yeah, but, you know... I, Great, great. I mean, clearly Button hasn't lost the speed. I mean, he and Van Dorn were separated by fractions of a second uh, through most of the weekend. And Button Button clearly still has the pace. I'm not quite sure he has the racing skill anymore. No. <laughs> but uh, but he certainly is, is quick. And, and um, yeah, he, he showed that he's, uh, you know, still worthy of an F1 drive. Whether or not we'll ever see him behind the wheel again is another question. But, uh, yeah, he had a good weekend, I thought. Well, just as a quick digression, I I was frankly upset that Button made the decision to stick with McLaren through thick and thin as opposed to taking what I'm nearly certain was offered to him, a race seat at Williams. Yeah. And, you know, for me, that would have been a much better swan song for Button than uh, this randomly coming out of retirement because Fernando wants to race Indy cars. But, yeah, it was it was disappointing because... This was, as many people thought, the track where McLaren can bring themselves up, score some points, show well, show that, in fact, the chassis is capable, even if the motor is not. And to put Button in pit lane after he got to Q3, that was disappointing. And then, you know, he was mired in the back because of an early pit stop, which in some ways you could argue was clever to get the pit stop out of the way and just be able to run uh, the full race on the slightly harder tires. Because as you mentioned before, the abrasiveness of the track is so low and the speeds are a little bit lower Mm -hmm. that tires last longer. But 
it, it didn't pan out. He was in a quagmire with uh, Verline of all people. That's and, right. And so that just kind of went went sour. But just to wrap up qualifying before we go full race here, I I want to make sure that we give Kimi his due. I mean, he drove a lap that no one could match, and I he did it well. He did it in his cool, calm, collected self. And uh, Vettel couldn't do anything about it, as just as we spoke, Mercedes. But I was a little half expecting Verstappen or Ricardo to come up with something in the second part of Q3. Yeah, no one. No one had anything for Ferrari. So that was, I think, the biggest uh, warning to Mercedes yet. Well, you know, the highlight or the low light for me in qualifying was was Q2 and Hamilton's uh, um disastrous session really he was almost a second off in q2 than he had been running in practice so there's no doubt he had the pace to get into q3 i just don't understand you know monica is very simple you got to get out you got to get a lap early you got to you got to get the time in uh because you always know someone's going to crash sooner or later and van dorn duly delivered that later in the session and that uh hamilton was on track i think after two sectors to get into q3 but then he had to back out obviously because of the van dorn crash at the swimming pool so uh, just amazing. It's such a basic sport in some respects. And you, it amazes me that some of these teams are unable to really figure that out and get their driver out and get a good lap time in early. I mean, I know he was struggling with his first set of tires, but even so, it's just, it's, it's those sort of mistakes are going to cost him and Mercedes dearly, I think, at the end of the season, unless they, they don't cut them out quickly. Well, I, I, it's a very good point. And I, that's what I was getting at when I mentioned Russia. It seems like if Hamilton's having a bad day, it's a really bad day. He seems to exacerbate his own troubles. And I don't know if it's an emotional thing, if he just gets caught up. Or... I don't know if he was having a bad day. That car had no grip. I mean, did you see them, the, you know, on his first run in, in Q2, he had some major moments and he did really well to keep it out of the Armco, frankly. He did very well. Uh, no argument there, but... But the know. car just wasn't gripping for him for whatever reason. And I mean, they're talking about, you know, his very narrow tire window. Um, if, you're not, if you're not in that window, it just you just don't get grip from the tires. And for whatever reason, they can't get him into that window. And I think it's not just a... It, I mean, Hamilton obviously plays a part, but there's something very wrong in in the setup of that car for him where he's not getting the tires into the into the right operating temperature range and uh i mean and he's you know he's trying to drive the best he can and clearly uh um it's just not working right now on on that type of track so but but as you said yourself i mean he was he sorted it out some ways because he uh, he was on track to get into q3 when the van dorn incident happened right so uh, it wasn't it wasn't that the car had so little grip that there was nothing he could do. It was that the car was low on grip and the way he was reacting to that was not panning out and turning into a poor result. And as a, was he 13th or 14th on the grid? He was 14th, but then with the button penalty, he uh, got uh, promoted one spot, didn't he? But I mean, honestly, uh, I don't think, even if he'd got into Q3, I don't think he would have done much better than sixth place. I really only think Sainz cost him any points yesterday um, because he didn't have the pace of the Red Bulls, Botas, or the Ferraris. So I think sixth was as good as he was going to achieve given given his performance in that car over the weekend. So to to salvage seventh, I guess, could be could be viewed as a reasonable result given that he was just so off the pace of the top runners. But um, you know, he's now a he's now a race win behind Vettel. 
And uh, that's a lot of points, to, you know, and Vettel is being, is having a great season. Um, you know, he hasn't been off the podium yet this, this year. He's, he's either finished first or second. And, uh, you know, he is remorseless. He's always on it. He doesn't seem to have a bad day, unlike Hamilton. Uh, the Ferrari seems to be reliable. And, uh, you know, clearly Ferrari are already favoring him over Raikkonen. I mean, I don't know what your yeah, view was. No, that, that's, that's quite obvious. The, the race strategy, pitting Raikkonen so early just didn't make any sense. And he was, he was furious after the race on the podium clearly thinking it had been stacked in Vettel's favor. Oh, and, and he was right. It was. I mean, to a certain extent, you can't blame Ferrari too much. Um, they are they are still uh, very um, uh, nostalgic of the Schumacher era where there was one clear leader, everything wrapped around him, and it served them well, you know, five championships in a row. So... I can't blame them entirely, but, you know, Raikkonen and Raikkonen probably would not enjoy too many comparisons with Rubens. So uh, that that's part of it. But again, you know, Raikkonen is not the youngest driver on the grid either. So uh, there's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, nuance in that. But from a pure objective point of view, yeah, the race leader should have had better favor than the number two guy. And he was the race leader, not because of some, you know, random circumstance on the track. He was race leader because he put in a lap that no one else could match. So yeah, I, I'm, I'm not, I'm not pleased with Ferrari's tactics, uh, intra team, but yeah, you can't argue with their one too. It's interesting. You know, I noted after Vettel's pit stop, he was, you know, half a second ahead of Raikkonen. Um, and after 15 laps, uh, he was 11 seconds ahead. So the question is, you know, did Raikkonen just get out of it at that point? He was obviously realizing he was going to lose the race or was Vettel really that much quicker in, in race conditions? Because that's quite a quite a big differential considering there being, you know, a couple of tenths in it all weekend to pull out uh, 11 seconds in 15 laps. That's a huge margin. So, um, you know, Vettel put in some amazing laps during that period when he had to. And that's always been a hallmark of his career, the ability to find the pace at the critical moments, a little bit Schumacher-esque. Um, and, uh, but, you know, four lap difference between their pit stop strategies, it does look like there was a, an intention to stack it in, in Vettel's favor. And uh, yeah, I mean, that's going to be another big factor in, in, in uh, the battle between Mercedes and Ferrari, isn't it? Because I don't think Mercedes will call it in, in Hamilton's favor. I think they'll allow Hamilton and Bottas to race all season. And obviously, if Ferrari are going to favor Vettel, then that's going to be a huge advantage to them. Well, as you said, uh, Vettel is one race distance clear in the championship points now. And there is a clear distinction between Hamilton v. Vettel and Bottas v. Raikkonen. And currently, Vettel over Hamilton, Bottas over Raikkonen. But uh, with this result, Raikkonen did close the gap. Right. So it'll be interesting to see, does this pole position kind of give Raikkonen any kind of boost to, you know, to just have a little bit more in it and be a tiny bit more competitive? Is he getting a better understanding of this generation car? I think that is one of Raikkonen's uh, weaknesses, is he tends to need a little bit more time to get a car sorted to his liking than some of the other drivers. I mean, we had... I don't know if this was 14 or 15, but it took several Grand Prix before he was happy with steering feel. 
He was always complaining that the steering was too light. And this wasn't a simple matter of dialing back the power steering. This was getting all the hard points and geometry sorted to really make it feel the way he wanted. So, but um, there is good news that happened during the Monaco Grand Prix. Mm -hmm. Uh, Red Bull had Daniel Ricciardo's, or Ricardo's, sorry, I went for the Italian pronunciation. (laughs) Red Bull had tires ready for Daniel. And so he could actually get in and out as planned. That was exciting. And what a catch he made after the safety car period where he... uh, he almost put it into the barriers at turn one. Uh, how he how he saved the car there, I have no idea because because that was an incredible catch. Um, yeah, he had a great race, no doubt about it. And it's he's such a such a nice guy, Daniel, isn't he? So so upbeat, so happy all the time. And yeah, I mean there were some there were some great results yesterday. I mean I was astonished by some of the midfield performance. I mean Carlos Sainz was phenomenally quick, up to fourth at one point during the pit stop rotation. Thoroughly deserved his sixth. Um, but the Haas team had a great day, right? Two cars yeah. in the top 10. Exactly right. Um, and they yeah. were very competitive as well. Yeah, Kevin Magnussen, uh, he was kind of dancing in and out of the points, but he, I'll say, kept his wits about him and uh, plowed on and uh, was able to, partially through um, other cars taking themselves out, uh, was able to move up. But he did quite well. And Kevin Magnussen is proven uh, very quick. I mean, you know, they're... Uh, Grosjean is clearly the team leader, and deservedly so. But uh, Esteban Gutierrez was just not not quite ready for this. And uh, Kevin Magnussen is proving that he is, in my opinion at least, worthy of the multi-year contract he got. Yeah, they had a solid race. I mean, the interesting thing for me was, was Force India dropping away, right? Force India have had a great season so far. Uh, they were running in the top 10 for, for a large portion of the race, but uh, Perez seemed to want to crash into everything that was moving or not moving. Oh, he literally <laughs> said as much on the radio. He says, I'm going to try hard until the end. It's like, well, you know, it's it's kind of a, yeah, there was a lot of damage. And this gets back to what I mentioned earlier. The cars are wider than before. Mm-hmm. And I think that there might be, for some of those guys, a little bit of muscle memory involved and if your muscle memory is used to an eight-inch narrower car, well, you know, you can rub the Armco just a little bit too hard. So, yeah, I mean, the Perez's move on Kafiat uh, at Raskas was uh, was almost as bad as Buttons on Verline. And both obviously resulted in, in, in cars being put into the barriers and three DNFs from those two passing moves, which I think were the only two passing moves in the entire race. So, what was Button <laughs> thinking? What was Button thinking? That tiny little shoot between that and then you're getting onto the canal side to go under the bridge. Yeah. I just, I, I was just so upset for the guy. And that is, in, that is in spite of the fact this was a nice little quip moment where uh, Fernando, I'm assuming via telephone call or something, got on the radio with Jensen Button. Uh, uh, Fernando was uh, up and getting ready for the Indy 500 in uh, Speedway, Indiana. And and uh, he was on the phone saying, Jensen, this was before the race, Jensen, good luck, um, you know, have a good time, don't damage my car. And then Jensen went on to say, well, I'm going to pee in your seat. <laughs> <laughs> 
and uh, which is is that an English tradition? Is that is that what is that what folks do in England? Is that uh, not not that I'm aware of, but uh, you know maybe race race car drivers think <laughs> a little differently. Well, anyway, so that was a real nice lighthearted moment, and you know Jensen was clearly comfortable enough, comfortable enough to still quip, but uh, you know to then go on and have he was very very intelligent to get on the radio to complain of Verline. Um, maybe having an unsafe pit release when the two were together in the pits. And, but then later on, he just got anxious or tired or maybe he was fancying uh, a mimosa. So he said, wow, I just get out of the car now. Well, he was never going to pass anyone through the tunnel, was he, with the Honda lump in the back. So I guess he had nothing to lose. Um, And, um, you know, it's rather lucky that Verline wasn't injured in that. That was a pretty nasty accident, pretty cool onboard footage. Not as cool as uh, the, the footage from Scott Dixon's car, but it was well, still yeah, it was still entertaining. Was, we'll, but, we'll get to that later. But, um, yeah, I, it just goes to show that there's got to be something done, I think, to the Monaco layout if you really want passing, because the DRS zone's too short. Um, they need to, uh, I guess, maybe extend the track out into the harbour in order to create a straight long enough for someone to attempt an overtaking manoeuvre because right, right now it's, it, is, uh, it is a 78-lap procession, a, a beautiful one, and it's great to see the cars dancing, but it's almost impossible to pass. I mean, so I'm, you haven't mentioned it, so I'll, I'll bring it up. I'm wearing my 1992 Williams T-shirt here, the glory days of Mansell and the active 14B car. And, uh, you know, one of the prettiest cars ever made as well, I believe. Absolutely. An Adrian Newey car. And of course, that was the year that Mansell should have won Monaco, but had a puncture. And despite being like two to three seconds a lap quicker than Senna, couldn't get past him. I mean, it's, it's, uh, you know, was there ever any passing in Monaco? I mean, if you go way back pre-war, did people pass each other? I'm not sure. I'll have to look it up one day (laughs) because I'd like to know how many genuine passing maneuvers have been completed at, at Monaco. In the past, I know I've seen some passes made coming out of the tunnel. Yeah. But, yes, it is a hard place to pass. But it is uniquely beautiful in atmosphere, in culture, and the race design. And the track itself, just as you mentioned, it is one of the few tracks where it is genuinely entertaining just to see the car um, attempting to get a lap from it. So. I, I'm I'm still a lot more favorable to Monaco uh, in general, but I will say this does lead to uh, a conversation I know you and I you and I have had in the past, which is aero sensitivity. And in Monaco, there's a little bit less of that. You're trying to maximize the downforce because the speeds are generally lower, but still, aero sensitivity is an issue. You can't have uh, you can't have your front end wash away. You'll understeer right into the Armco, so. I would I I do more and more as I age, and maybe this is just me. I miss the cigar-shaped uh, Formula cars of the '60s more and more. Yeah, I, I mean, it was interesting to me. Hamilton got a couple of runs on science late on in the race, and uh, on one lap in particular, I think a couple of laps from the end, he uh, he was right on on the gearbox of Verline going into the tunnel, and yet didn't even look like it was ever going to come off and he didn't even make an attempt into the chicane. And that's with the, you know, one of the best engines um, on the grid. So the best, I think we can say, well, I don't know, maybe Ferrari have an edge these days, but I mean, it's certainly up there, isn't it? And um, yeah, I mean, definitely more mechanical, less aero. Um, I guess good old uh, Ross Braun is in the process of hiring some, some very smart people and and they're going to look at the, the rules going forward here. And hopefully that'll be something that they, 
they really address how to get more genuine overtaking out of these cars um less less error sensitivity able to follow each other much closer through through the, the corners so they can actually make genuine passes without having to have drs i mean that i think that's what everyone would love right without uh without you know taking away the technical um aspects of the formula because i think most most formula one fans do love you know the, the arms race between the manufacturers but it doesn't have to be an aero arms race i'm not sure it does anymore it, i think that's exactly it it doesn't have to be an arrows arm race an arrow excuse me arms race and my obvious opinion is no and the other thing is there's ways to get aer- aerodynamics without having as much aero sensitivity effectively i'm talking about the floor if you uh, allow more aero sense uh, more aerodynamics built into the floor and then take it away from uh, the front and rear wings and other little flutes and cutlets and winglets on the various bodywork pieces uh, to me that's an acceptable alternative and also let's not forget that tire technology has come a long way from the bias ply days and you know, we can get very high amounts of grip mechanically. And yeah, if you don't have the arrow, you're wearing the tires faster. Good. Okay. That's fine. You know, I, for me, what I would want to see is more nose to tail driving. And just as you mentioned, DRS has proved to be a very useful tool, but it is ultimately, it's a gimmick. It's not an actual race car design. That DRS is not built to uh, make a car better. It's built to make a car more passable. And it came out of a really clever idea from McLaren, the F-duct. Mm-hmm. But that was originally a mistake. Mc- McLaren couldn't figure out how their rear wings kept stalling. And when they did figure it out, they're like, wait, hang on a bit. <laughs> what if we were able to just have it stall on the straights and then react it? The F-Tuck was born, it was brilliant, and now here we have the DRS, which is a more obvious mechanical version of the same thing. Yeah, I think tires are a big factor as well. Um, Ultra soft compound, able to run 78 laps effectively. I mean, there's a problem with the the Pirelli compounds for this season still. Uh, They've tried to make the tires... Uh, more usable this year. I guess the drivers are, are happier with the behavior of the tires, but the compounds are still too hard. Um, it would it would have been more entertaining, I think, if if they'd have had to change a couple of times um, it, during the race. We would have had more shuffling going on, um, more tire wear. Uh, drivers struggling with 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 managing the tires would have been a bit more entertaining. But they're still too hard. I don't know how Pirelli just don't seem to have a handle on what's really necessary to make entertaining racing. Um, so whether or not we need another tire manufacturer coming in or, or, or clearer direction or more tire testing for Pirelli during the season. But, uh, you know, that's that's extraordinary that the ultra soft compound was still quicker than the super softs, you know, 40 odd laps in. I mean, that's just extraordinary and something that needs to be addressed for next season because I can't imagine that Ross will introduce wholesale technical changes for uh, for 18. So we, we need... Um, better tires for next year if we, we want to see more 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 passing i will uh challenge your assertion in, in one spec I, I i tend to have more sympathy for pirelli and the task they were given with the amount of testing they're allowed as you mentioned it might be testing i think it's testing but it's also the demand for they want more grip but they also want 
uh, a decent amount of durability and they want uh, they want a minimal amount of marbles built up on the track over time or clag as some folks like to call it and those kinds of things are kind of opposed to each other so it, it inherently means compromise and so where do you where and how do you draw that line and perhaps Michelin was just simply better at it but you know it, the Michelin uh Bridgestone wars uh, the tire wars that was fascinating right but it was also in some ways hampering it was like well is it is it the car's better or the tire's better and then also in that era of course uh, Bridgestone had a special deal with Ferrari. So Ferrari got really the only proper Bridgestone tire and everybody else got the leftovers. So it, it's it's a fascinating... I, point being, I'm more sympathetic to Pirelli um, and a little bit more looking at the rule book as the root cause. Are you looking for a free set of tires? Is that what's going on? <laughs> <laughs> My size is 225. <laughs> no, but... The, but uh, I find that uh, the rule book is uh, is the root cause, and again, Ross Braun might be able to address some of these concerns. So we'll see. But uh, at the end of the day, it was, I thought, in many ways, a great Monaco Grand Prix. Fewer passes than would be ideal, certainly. Um, thank goodness for pits. But uh, what did you think of the podium, Riken in in the middle step? Uh, Vettel on top, Ricardo getting the third spot. Yeah, I mean, poor old Kimi. It would have been nice to see him convert pole into a win. I think uh, I think most people would have would have enjoyed that result a little bit better. But it's great to see him back um, quick enough to to out qualify Vettel. Uh, so hopefully he'll have a more consistent remainder of the seventeen season and be much more on the pace because I think that'll be that'll make the whole championship a lot more entertaining. Um, Love to see Red Bull get a little bit closer. Uh, Ricardo is and Verstappen are a very exciting combination of drivers. I'm sure we'll see some race wins from them, especially if it gets a, a little wet a couple of races later this year. Um, you know, and Vettel, as I said earlier, he looks he looks dangerous. He looks like he can see a championship, his fifth world title, and he's he's going after it. And um, so he's going to be quite hard to stop, I think. Um, you know, my personal. I was quite pleased to see uh, Williams get get a couple of points in ninth, and um, I was quite I was quite pleased to see Lance Stroll not crash, although he didn't didn't quite finish. I was going to mention Lance Stroll. I, you know, he's he's becoming, and I mean this with respect, but he's kind of becoming a Jacques Villeneuve two point a little bit here. The he's, and that's unfair. He's quite young. He's still could prove to be a very capable driver, but I feel like he maybe jumped just, it's just a little bit too much of a leap for him. I think you're right. It's maybe too much too soon. I mean, you know, we, we all remember the days of Pastor Maldonado and um, he used to crash a lot, but th- to be to be fair to Pastor, he was quick. When he didn't crash, he was, he was fast. He was fast, whereas Lance and isn't. And he had a Grand Prix win. Lance isn't turning out to be that fast and he crashes a lot. Sometimes not his own doing, but he, he still has a pretty pretty torrid record so far. So there's got to be some significant improvement there. Uh, but but nice to see Williams get a couple of points. As we talked about, has had a good result. Um, we had uh, 
We had STR doing very well, Scuderia Toro Rosso. Well, as said. you mentioned, Carlos Sainz uh, drove quite, quite well. I thought, uh, you know, Verstappen clearly is extremely strong. But I thought just how close Sainz kept himself to Verstappen when they were teammates at STR showed just how strong Sainz is as well. And I don't know, it's always fun to think about having a a rally father instead of a sports car open wheel father, what differences those made. But uh, if there's ever a Grand Prix on the dirt, my money's on signs. Absolutely. <laughs> right. So, yeah, it was an interesting race. Um, it puts the championship in a, in, in a good spot. Um, you know, Vettel's opening up a sizable lead. Ferrari now have uh, 17 points on Mercedes in the constructors championship. Uh, they're looking strong. I mean, you know, Mercedes Benz in 14 and 15, 84% win rate. Uh, last year, 90% win rate. Now they're down at 43. They, they got some work to do. And uh, it'll be interesting to see if they're up to the challenge and can come back and really take the fight to Ferrari. But is that a bad thing? No. I mean, is that, is that a bad no, thing? No, I think everyone's very happy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, really, it, you know, what Mercedes had more than anything else was a three-year holiday where, you know, Ferrari and Red Bull and Williams, you know, Williams in, in 14 looked like they could be on the verge of becoming a top team again. Right. And that they've, they've kind of remained strong mid-pack. But, you know, they enjoyed uh, a lack of competition to a certain extent. They figured out the rule book better than the others. And it was easy for them. And this wasn't quite the dominance of the McLaren-Honda era, the uh, late 80s, early 90s, like 90-91. But... It wasn't far from it. Yeah. So I, I'm happy. I'm happy that it's 43% win rate. I would love to see, I would love to see um, a Red Bull uh, get a victory. And, you know, if development pace works out, maybe, just maybe, possibly, Nico Hulkenberg in the Renault. Yeah, Nico has been driving pretty quick. He didn't have a great weekend, did he? His teammate uh, actually almost got in the points. Palmer had a better weekend, finished 11th. Um yeah, I, there's, there's a lot of promise to the season. I mean, clearly the Ferrari and Mercedes in ultimate pace on most tracks are going to be extremely close. The Ferrari seems more adaptable to different track conditions, different types of tracks and track surfaces than the Mercedes. But you have to believe that sooner or later they'll get Mercedes will get on top of that. Um, so I think we're in for a cracking championship, no doubt. I mean, even a 25-point lead is, uh, you know, not insurmountable at this stage. You know, we go to, Mon uh, to uh, Canada next, Montreal, one of uh, Hamilton's favorite tracks. He's done phenomenally well there. Over he won his first ever Grand Prix in Montreal. Uh, I'm yeah, sure. Right. I'm sure it'll be quick. So we'll. Um, it'll be interesting to see if Raikkonen can keep up this newfound form and. Uh, and compete, and, and hopefully we'll have a good four-way battle for a win. Well, and uh, Canada is very much a power track. And a passing circuit. Uh, very much so, and uh, I'll be there. So I'll let you know firsthand if, uh, if it goes well or not, but this will be an excellent test of the power plants, you know, power units, excuse me, uh, if, if Ferrari really does have uh, a little bit of legs on the Mercedes. It'll be most obvious here. Yeah, you're right. I mean, there's nowhere to hide on those uh, incredibly long straights uh, around uh, Montreal. So definitely will be an interesting race. I think uh, Red Bull will struggle. Definitely the, the Renault engine still seems to be some way down. That's uh, a tag hewer engine. Or is that, is that, it was a tag hewer last year. 
Maybe maybe they dropped that. I, I lose track of what brand they're putting on it. Could be an Infinity, I, could be anything, couldn't it? I have a Tag Heuer engine on my wrist. <laughs> it doesn't seem to have blown up during the course no, of this no, podcast. No, it, no, it, it still, right. it still works. Yeah, yeah it, it is smoking now that we mention it, though. Uh, yeah, it, it, it should be exciting to watch, uh, watch it unfold. And it, if Hamilton, which he, he very much, there's no reason to expect otherwise, he will get it together and he will win more Grand Prix. He will be competitive. He will. And listen, Vettel, Ricardo proved it in 15 and, uh, just circumstances proved it, uh, last year. Vettel can be shaken. And, uh, so if he gets rattled, that might give him a couple of bad Grand Prix and fights right up in the open again. Yeah, I mean, I think we all got what we wanted in Spain, didn't we? We had a great race between Vettel and Hamilton, wheel to wheel. Um, you know, the race result was in doubt, right, and up until the final lap. Um, that was very entertaining. Um, it would have been nice to see you know, a similar battle um, around Monte Carlo. Hopefully we'll get that in Montreal. Yes, very much so. So that was the morning race. <laughs> That's right. Then we move on. Then we move on. Uh, I really have to say that who won the Indianapolis 500 is Honda. Clearly because their engine won the race. But just because the attention that was paid to Honda and in a positive light, uh, you know, Fernando Alonso being there, performing as well as he did. Takuma Sato, a Japanese driver, winning for Honda. Is he the first ever Japanese to win the 500? That's a good one. The first in my recollection, but mine is not comprehensive. Yeah, I can't think of another another driver that would have won. Because Sato's been in uh, IndyCar Indy racing for quite a while, hasn't he? And he's had uh, one win prior to yesterday. But That's right. That's a yeah. huge victory for him, really. Very well. And he's, you know, I loved watching Takuma Sato in his Formula One days because he always, always tried. Always tried. He was the guy that would find a gap. He was an absolute demon on the brakes. Didn't always go his way, but uh, he but he, w- he was always aggressive and worthy of try. And he raced for AJ Foyt for a few years, and that alone is an achievement of sorts. But, um, but yeah, no, Honda in general. Honda, I believe the number is had 18. Of the 33 cars were Honda-powered. And I started getting quite nervous towards the end of the race as Ryan hunter Ray's engine popped. Then Fernando's popped, which, of course, was cruel irony. But it was, in fact, Honda had the legs over Chevy, speaking of engine power. And they won the, they, they won the Indianapolis 500. So uh, I think Honda... Just they had all the publicity and they had the victories to back it up. Yeah, they they had so many cars in the top ten. Um, they they really definitely had a, a big advantage around that track yesterday. Um, really, a, a very very interesting race all the way through. Uh, as you said, Alonso just performed just brilliantly. Oh, it was magnificent! I couldn't believe how well he did. Yeah, just an amazing drive. Too bad he didn't get to finish. The, finish the race it didn't look like he was going to win really it looked like he was running a bit more downforce than some of the other cars and was struggling to to make some passes at key key moments um castro neves was very feisty at the end but uh, but sato was very cool calm and collected and and um and did a very nice job to to get the win but to me the the, the moment of the race obviously was the crash that uh, poor old scott dixon 
got caught up in and just the amazing strength of the, the, those cars. I mean, you know, that tub was not damaged at all. I mean, the rest of the car was scattered across half of uh, Indianapolis. But, uh, I mean, to walk away from that type of shunt was... Because he was airborne for quite some time, right? It must have been 10, 15 feet in the air as well. Uh, yeah, and for quite, quite a long ways. Now, it, that, that, ray, that accident scared me until I could see him get in and out of the car because... When he, he when he hit the inside impact wall, he was inverted yeah. and coming in. And that he hit that wall about, I don't know, midway into the engine bay, the back part of the car. Yeah. Had that impact been shifted three feet, that would have ended it. That would have been the end. And that would have been horrific. <laughs> and it just... So I more than anything I got it, the the car strength was incredible, but uh, the impact uh, was incredibly lucky. Just real quick to to drive this point home a little bit. Uh, Jules Bianchi at the Japanese Grand Prix a couple of years back, you know, he hit that uh, uh, heavy equipment in just the wrong place, and uh, that's that's what that's what. Uh, that's what uh, sealed his fate. That could have verily, regardless of the car's strength, that would have been the same for Scott. So I'm not trying to be morbid here. I'm just, <laughs> as someone with a bit of experience with head injuries myself, it's, uh, that that was, that, that I skipped a couple heartbeats there. Yeah, you're right. I mean, it, it could have been a lot worse if it, uh, the, the impact point had been further forward, but it was lucky that the, it was a safer safer barrier that he struck uh which had obviously had a little bit of give in it and um but yeah i mean there was some some big old shunts in that race there always are and um everyone walked away thankfully scott scott got out of the car and he was talking about looking forward to next year and it was a shame for the sponsors and i was like how do you do i actually when i was at uh, roan track magazine i interviewed scott dixon once over the phone and He's a very likable, personable, intelligent guy. He's he's a very easy person to like. And then uh, was I don't know. Several months later, I saw him at the Twelve Hours of Sebring. He was running in one of Chip Ganassi's uh, sports cars, and I said, "Oh, hi, Scott. We spoke on the phone once." And he obviously didn't remember me well, but he he's very cordial. Oh yeah, and he remembered the conversation like a point i'm getting at is he's such a likable person he's the type of person that you get to know him and you want him to do well right yeah this is some really nice personalities in in indycar these days when I, mean, I was always a huge fan of dario franchitti it was a shame when he uh he had to retire because he always seemed like a really genuine chap but it was a good day for formula one yesterday i mean you look at uh so obviously sato ex formula one driver uh, uh, yes. chilton was uh in the lead for a while as was rossi yeah as was rossi the, the most recent american formula one That's driver. right so yeah f1 had a good day at indy and um definitely uh not sure i haven't been following the indycar season that much this season i'll probably go to the the uh, detroit grand prix uh this coming weekend but um but yeah i mean it's great to see somebody different winning. I mean, Castro Neves, three-time winner, obviously going for a bit of a record there, but it was nice to see Sato get some some reward for how many... I mean, he's got to have been in IndyCar for a lot of lot of seasons now. I mean, when did he retire from F1? 
Takuma raced uh, for Super Aguri uh, until, uh, through the 2008 season, and then he's been in IndyCar uh, one way or the other since 2010. So, yeah, he, he's been he's been racing IndyCars for quite a while now, and this is the first time he's been attached to the Andretti Autosport, which, of course, is Michael Andretti's team. And if I'm remembering correctly, Andretti had six cars he fielded this year because he had Fernando Alonso, he had Takuma Sato, he had Ryan uh, Hunter Ray, obviously his son Marco, and then he also had uh, Carlos Munoz and Alexander Rossi. Yeah, six cars. Yeah, but he won the battle between uh, Ganassi, Penske, and uh, Andretti, right? Comprehensively. Obviously, he had the uh, the Honda lump, which was uh, an advantage. Uh, Marco didn't seem to have a good race. I didn't see much of Marco. He seemed to be midfield most of the time. I'm... He well, he was he was top ten at the start, and he was being aggressive, and then he had a couple of bad pit stops or a bad pit stop even, and that's actually exactly what happened to Alexander Rossi. Rossi was very competitive. Mm. He qualified in, on the front row, and was aggressive and led the race multiple times first half, but then he had a green flag pit stop that lasted fifteen sixteen seconds. The fuel mm. they still refuel in IndyCar, and um, they couldn't get the fuel nozzle in. That cost him a few seconds. And then because of the timing, he had to wait a few seconds uh, for a safe pit release. So an eight-second stop became you know closer to an 18-second stop. And that mired him in, in midfield, and he couldn't really ever recover from that. Yeah, it seems like Rossi has committed his future to IndyCar. Oh, he, he definitely has. Yeah. Which, yeah. which is a shame because he was the most likely uh, uh, Formula One driver that the U.S. was going to produce. I mean, who else is there up and coming for, I can't think of another U.S. driver that might uh, be worthy of an F1 drive anytime no, soon? No, not at the moment. Well, it, worthy and has the interest uh, that combined, I can't think of anyone at all. You know, there, were, there was a time, it's ironic, uh, it's funny to think about in fact, that uh, both Graham Rahal and Marco Andretti were talked about a stop at any car on their way to Formula One, and that clearly proved not to be the case. Yeah, well, they got ruined by the likes of people like Bourdais, didn't they, who, uh, having dominated IndyCar for a couple of seasons, then then didn't really do so well in Formula One. So, unfortunately, as an avenue into Formula One, that sort of got killed by that lack of performance. Speaking of which, Sebastian Bourdais, he had the worst crash of the month, but um, he is doing okay. It was... Fortunately, it was, you know, damage to bones and muscle, not to his head. That was the major issue. So he he's going to be okay. Yeah, I saw a picture he tweeted of him up on his up on his feet uh, with the help of crutches. So it's good he's already making uh, making a fast recovery. Yeah. So no, the IndyCar season. Uh, you mentioned uh, the amount of passing that went on at the Monaco Grand Prix. I have to say, you know, uh, I watched the uh, Barber Motorsports Park race in Alabama, and I caught uh, sections of the race in uh, Long Beach and uh, St. Petersburg as well, which is their season opener. And, you know, IndyCar has been putting on a good show. And for a lot of years, IndyCar was just mired in the battle between cart slash champ car and the IRL Indy Racing League when the two split in the mid 90s and uh, so that hurt them to the point that they're putting on a better show than the crowds give them you know and it's it's a shame so but as you mentioned uh, 
a week from today and a week from yesterday, in fact, they'll be right in our uh, backyard. That's right. There's a race called the Duel in Detroit, or which, which is D-U-A-L Duel because, uh, because they have a full-length feature race on Saturday and then another one on Sunday. So in a sense, it's a double points race of sorts. Um, but it's two separate qualifiers, two separate races, and it's going to be a great weekend. And, uh, yeah, I, I think both Chris and I hope to be there. Yeah, it's, um, it's another track where, which isn't entirely conducive to passing. A lot of, uh, lot of concrete barriers, uh, pretty bumpy track. But, um, but, yeah, it's usually pretty entertaining and great to, to get up. You can get up really close to the cars and um, see, them, see the drivers in action. It's always good fun. Chris. You did it. You survived. You did, you, you, you did a podcast. <laughs> All right, you, cool. You were, you were, you're officially a co-host. It happened. Uh, Chris showed up. He had uh, notes. He had his William shirt on. He was like, yeah, I think I'm ready. I hope I'm prepared. I'm like, Chris, you're, you're, you're prepared. Trust me. You'll <laughs> be just fine. But uh, no, it was, uh, it, was, it was so much fun to, uh, to have someone, to, another engineer to talk to to really nerd out on uh, certain aspects. Not that Jim Lau was not a worthy nerd. He had, you know, uh, Jim Lau, my co-creator of this podcast, you know, he is uh, the number two guy at Race Logic USA, which is data acquisition, which, right. which I'm sure you're aware of. And, you know, he's, he's plenty technical, but he's not, strictly speaking, an engineer. So, uh, you know, we would have these fun little you know, he was more of a strict numbers guy. Okay. Where I would get into a little bit more of the F equals MA side of things. Yeah. I mean, it's not the easiest podcast to start off with, Monaco, is it? Let's be honest. So I'm um, looking forward <laughs> to the next one being a more entertaining race that we can really get into. Yeah. Well, and again, that, that very well could be uh, the duel in Detroit, which uh, I, I mean, genuinely speaking, you know, that is... Uh, that is a race that has a long history that was, you know, the Detroit Grand Prix was, in fact, a Formula One race in the late 80s, but that was never on Belle Isle. That was in the streets of Detroit. Um, but Roger Penske, about, I don't know, 10 years ago, pumped a bunch of money into Belle Isle, which is the island park where the race is held, and turned it into, I think, one of the better events on the IndyCar calendar. Yeah, that's right. I mean, there's... Um he put a lot of money into the paddock area, which is now nicely paved. And if you happen to be into autocrossing in the Detroit area, you can go and do autocrosses on that, uh, on that paddock area the rest of the year. Um, yeah, I agree. It's a, it's a beautiful uh, scene, right? Stuck in the middle of the Detroit River. And um, the access to the drivers and the teams is, is really good. So if you're used to, you know, Formula One style access, um, IndyCar is a breath of fresh air. You can really get up close to the drivers and the cars and, and uh, enjoy the action. Which is exactly what we are going to do in, uh, well, six or seven days' time. But uh, until then, this is great. Um, Chris Roche, thank you very much for joining us. I'm Robin Warner. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>